Well, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. It's always good to see each of you here on the Lord's Day uh, together with uh, the rest of us. And if you're visiting, we're glad to have you as our guest and hope that this service is a blessing to you. And not to forget those that are watching by way of live stream, we're glad you're here too. And uh, it is good to be in the house of the Lord. I'd like to invite you to turn with me once more. This will be the next to the last time we turn in the book of Esther. We will look at the last portion of chapter 9 this morning. And next week we'll conclude with that very long chapter, chapter 10, only three verses. But you may see there on your page some white space. That's the light at the end of the tunnel. We've spent about uh, 10 weeks, perhaps, maybe 11 before we're done. And um, what we'll do is we'll read this uh, together. And then we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help. And that is our pattern to try to understand and obey God's Word. This is verse 20, Esther chapter 9. And Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month, Adar, and also the 15th day of the same year by year, as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned from them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Verse 23, So the Jews accepted what they had started to do, And what Mordecai had written to them, for Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. He had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, and that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore, they called these days Purim. After the term poor, therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and all that had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they should keep these two days according to what was written and at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, and city and that these days of Purim should never fail to in, should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Verse twenty nine. Then Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews to the one hundred and twenty seven provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fast and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, 
we thank you for another Sunday morning, another portion from your word, another opportunity to sit together with our church family, with our Bibles open. Lord, teach us what we need to know. Help us to understand what this meant as it was written, and then help us to obey what it implies as far as our life here and now. We thank you again for this time. We thank you in the name of a strong name, the name of Jesus. Amen. When was the last time that you heard the statement, or maybe in response to something said or done, that goes something like, much obliged to you? Probably didn't hear it this week, um, or live at all. If you heard it, or have heard it recently, I bet you, I don't bet much, usually it's just a dollar. But I would bet that you are watching gun smoke, um, maybe Bonanza, maybe the Rifleman, maybe uh, the Waltons. But that's kind of an antiquated phrase, much obliged. Usually it involved Hoss taking his hat off and putting it back, or maybe tipping it at least. That is a way of saying thank you. But it's more than just a thank you. It actually acknowledges that something has been done, even if it's as small as a compliment. But having received that compliment, you are in some way obligated to the person who has given the compliment or whatever gift that you feel indebted as a sort. That word obliged was actually in the first (coughs) verse of what we read, actually the second, verse 21, obliging them. Obligated is another way to say the same word. That's both the ESV and the NASB. Uh, Other translations may look at it slightly different, but these more modern translations, I thought interesting that they used an older type of word. The Hebrew means to stand up. So Mordecai, Esther are asking, requiring, obligating, that the Jews stand up in recognition to this that has happened for them, God having saved their lives. It's also interesting because an obligation is something we usually instinctively seek to avoid, isn't it? How many of you prefer an obligation if you ask for a quote rather than no obligations? And asking for a quote. How many of you enjoy handing over your email address knowing it's going on a list and that unsubscribe button never works? Unless you're using the church's system and it does work. You won't get anything from us after you click that button. But we don't like obligations. We don't like to be in someone's debt. We'd rather have our own immunity, separation. It goes along with America's ever-developing allergy as far as commitment goes. We went through this in New Members a couple of weeks ago, how it used to be you grew up in a small town and you were loyal to the grocer, you knew who they were, uh, you supported their business, everything was great. Now, if Aldi's a few cents cheaper than Walmart, you use Aldi, or vice versa. And I think they get together and make sure they only put certain stuff on sale, so you have to go to both. But what will we do? We save the dime at all costs. No obligations. It's just business. In this regard, this day of remembrance, a holiday, a new one, 
There couldn't be stronger language used other than just including the line, on pain of death. These people are obligating themselves to never forget that God saved their lives as exiles in Persia. So let's look through this, make sure we understand what they're saying, and then we'll see if any of this fits where we live right here and now. If you look again at verse 20, Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters. Uh, all the Jews in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, that's a pretty good mailing list that they know Jew from non-Jew, and then obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, also the 15th day. Why? Well, look at verse 22. As the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, the month had been turned from sorrow to gladness, from mourning into a holiday. That's why they will remember. Okay, how do they remember? Well, pick up where we left off midway through 22. That they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And you see, we thought that Baptists had the corner on the casserole delivery system. No, this goes way, way back. Feasting and gladness, even the sending of gifts, was a common Old Testament response to the experience of deliverance. If you know your Old Testaments well or you read through your Bible in a year, you see this over and over and over again. Whenever something happened, they would throw a party. Uh, sometimes uh, accompanied by songs made up for the specific purpose. One of the most fantastic, it, it seems, freestyle songs of the Old Testament was Deborah's song about routing their enemies. Some of the Psalms talk about defeat of Israel's enemies. But their memorials, their holidays, their feasts, some that God gave to them explicitly, some of them that they put together on their own. This is not uncommon in our Old Testament. But it's not a Jewish thing only. In fact, it's basic human behavior that whenever we go through a period of difficulty or struggle, once the coast is clear and the storm has passed, we want to celebrate that, usually. Uh, we come up with our own family traditions of, of how we do certain things. Um, and that doesn't mean you have to know the name of God at all. In fact, in the Bible, in Revelation 10, John tells us that after the beast kills the two witnesses and their bodies are lying in the streets, that the world, the lost world, is so glad that they're dead that they send presents to one another. I remember one of our uh, New Testament professors at school setting up a class with two guys exchanging gifts talking about how glad they were that the two witnesses were dead. It just stuck out in my mind as a way to get the class started. But that's something we instinctively do. If there's something to rejoice over, we usually have a party. And some of those things stick over time. That's different than this. This was decided it will stick before they ever did it and that it would never fall into disuse. The reason for the two-day holiday, if you were wondering, okay, why is it the 15th, the 14th, and the 15th day? Well, if you recall from last week, Esther asked after being given another blank check by the king, would you make a request? She said, one more day 
because it looked as if the, the hostilities had not yet ended. So in the city of Susa, they fought for two days. In all the surrounding areas, they fought for one. So one group was one day away from celebration uh, in opposition to the other. So to take care of that, to make everybody happy, two days' worth of Purim. And all are affected on those two days. What follows in the text here, by the time you get to verse 23 is challenging to interpret. This is one of those cases where it's tough uh, to take ancient Hebrew and put it into modern English. And not even that, but to try to understand from the original author who is the object of what is being said. So we've got some options as far as what the scholars tell us to do with these verses. Um, One idea is that it could be yet one more summarization. There's lots of summarizations. As you read, you feel like you got lost and you're reading the same thing again. It's on repeat. Well, that could be what this is. Or it could be a cleaned up version for public consumption. We've already heard what happened play by play. And we kind of have the advantage as the reader looking at things before they happen because the story was written later in time. I don't know if you've ever paid attention that sometimes when you're watching a movie and something's about to be resolved or uh, something's going to fall into place and happen, you actually know more about what's going on than the people that are involved in what's going on. It's the way the story's told. Now, this could be a cleaned-up version, which gives Ahasuerus, Xerxes, the king, some credit for involvement that he really had no part in. Because from the weeks prior, we know that the first decree was written by Haman. King gave his signet ring and said, you write it, sign my name to it. He had nothing to do with it. Same with the second one. After Haman's dead, he took the ring, gave it to Mordecai, you write the second edict to reverse the first one and sign my name to it. But when we start reading in verse 23, so the Jews accepted what they'd started to do. Mordecai wrote letters. Haman the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, we've heard all this plotted to destroy them. Then he cast lots to figure out what day. Verse 25, But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that had been devised against the Jews should return on his, that has to be Haman's head, and that his sons, who were Haman's sons, be hanged on the gallows. Only problem is, king didn't write that. So either this has been... uh, you know, cleaned up, uh, sp- spokesperson for the White House style, and uh, make sure that it's fit for public consumption. Or there's another option. The other option is that Mordecai is writing this and leaving it ambiguous so that perhaps the Persians could read it, and when they read king, they assume Ahasuerus where any Jew, self-respecting, would read this and assume, no, it wasn't Haman's dice that, that made this happen. It was God's providence. This king, Yahweh, turned all that on his head. Either way, um, the use of the term Purim is probably the main takeaway. Uh, Pur is a dice. Purim is the plural of pur. That's how they would do that. Same as uh, you've heard about the cherubim or the seraphim. 
That's plural. Seraph and cherub are singular. So, same thing here. Pur is the plural of pearl. It means dice. The reason why they use that term to name this holiday uh, is probably multifaceted. Not only does it make full use of the irony found out all through the book, um, but also to capture the sentiment of other places we have in scriptures by other biblical authors, namely Psalm 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You want to know how the Hebrews look at a, a pair of dice through the lens of that verse right there. You throw those dice. But where they land is according to the Lord. And they would use those lots or dice to determine the will of the Lord. All the way up until replacing Judas as the 12th apostle. And then the Holy Spirit falls and you never see dice again used by God's people. They have the Holy Spirit. At least the Christians. They don't use dice. The New Testament largely goes Christian after the period of Acts, which we'll be studying in a few weeks. But think about that. They're naming this feast Purim, which for most people would be naming it chances or random. Uh, we'll let the dice decide. How many of you ever, when you were a kid on the playground, trying to figure out who goes first and you flip a coin, do you, you really think that God's moving that coin so you get to kick first or decide not to? We don't look at it that way. It's a way to make it fair because fair would be random, right? If God's controlling it. Maybe we don't think that's fair. Well, Haman used it superstitiously. He wanted to know what date would be best to kill God's people. And that's not uncommon to the way folks try to figure things out. Uh, in China, they've got ways to figure out which day to get married because some days are lucky and some days are unlucky. And you don't want to get married on an unlucky day. You may have an unlucky marriage. We like to think better of that. We, we, we obey the scriptures. We choose a godly mate. We leave the rest in the hands of the Lord. We submit to each other, but ultimately under a principle that guides us both. And as humans and broken, we do the best we can under God. That's the way that these Jews would look at these dice. Haman's using them to figure out how to... Uh, some type of superstitious voodoo figure out the luckiest day to kill us all and they're looking at it all you're doing is throwing dice for the Lord to tell you the day he's going to reverse it all on your head that's why they named it this way um, the naming of this festival after dice which is the plural of die by the way reinforces the strange and surprising providence of God in all these events from the actual dice or lots that just happened to select the 13th day of Adar to whoever or whatever was necessary to cause the king not to be able to sleep one night and that Haman just so happened to come in at the right moment when the king was looking to figure out how to honor Mordecai and on and on and on and on. The book's so full of coincidence. It can't be coincidence. In this way, however... This is where we need to make a note and make sure we follow the, the text of Scripture. In commemorating this feast, named after randomness, which they know is not, 
they have ensured that the acts of God on their behalf should not simply pass into oblivion. So not only are they sure that those dice were not outside the ultimate control of God, they don't ever want to forget that. My, my kids laugh at me sometimes because from time to time I'll hear that word random used in the house and I'll always laugh tell them there's no such thing and it's kind of like uh, I read something um, this was R.C. Sproul's uh, biography that was written after his death if you're familiar with R.C. Sproul and the author in the beginning of the book talks about how he met R.C. Sproul with a friend of his where R.C. was speaking and he said when they gathered enough guts to go introduce themselves, his friend said, you wouldn't by chance happen to be speaking at such and such. I'll be there next week. I know you've spoken there before. R.C.'s response, I most assuredly believe that if I am speaking there, it is not by chance. Of course, this is a Reformed theologian. There's no such thing as one maverick molecule in God's universe. Everything is for a purpose and has repercussions. So you've got two different worldviews. It's their way of naming their holiday in such that they uh, give praise to their Lord and uh, a tongue-in-cheek insult to their enemy. But they've done so in such a way as to commemorate the whole thing for time and immemorial. Um, that the acts of their God should not simply pass into forgetfulness. Written into the story of Esther itself is recognition of the ever-present danger that people, even those called by God's name, would look upon the world, look upon its happenings, and not see God at work. That's something they wanted to make sure they never did. Because I'm, it's convenient for us at times to want to look at something as just being chance. When theologically we don't believe that it's chance. In fact, this is where we're so different than the rest of the world where in the face of tragedy you've lost something or someone. The last thing a Christian wants to think is that that slipped through the cracks, through the fingers of God's providence, that that actually is a victim of meaninglessness, that the devil got through somehow and scored a point or two. The only comfort I would find in devastation is that somehow this went not only through the Father, but through the Son on its way to me and must have purpose. Somehow, some way. So... If we believe this, if we live by this, if this has changed our lives, we, like these folks, should obligate ourselves to remember it. In this way, the jurors have ensured. Let me keep reading, and then we'll make some points as to how this shoe may fit ourselves. Verse 26, Therefore, because all that was written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and what happened to them, that's a good way... Uh, to expand on the word therefore. All this has to do with what's gone previous. Verse 27, The Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring. How many of you like that? Well, I'm seeing a pass 
open up with a wide open receiver here. I think I'll hold the ball a few minutes longer. Some of you know what I'm talking about. He's talking about football. No, I'm talking about a, a, a tee-off point right here. I'm going to leave it lay. All who joined them. There's another one. You got people visiting with you. It's Sunday morning. What do you do? Are you obligated to something important in your life? Or does all that change the moment somebody says, Well, I didn't bring anything good to wear. You can watch on live stream. We'll wave at you. At what point, how deep does this obligation go? They obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days in these days to be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan, province, city that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews or should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. Again, can you put anything stronger than just saying, or else we die? Oh, that's about as strong as you can make it. Verse 29, this is the wrap-up. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, Mordecai the Jew, gave full written authority. Uh, skip down a bit. As Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them as they had obligated themselves. Both parties agree. And their offspring. There it is again. How many of you think the kids had a choice in the matter? I don't think they did. I didn't have a choice in the matter. My kids don't have a choice in the matter. There's something to be said about the spiritual leadership of the home. All right. All of this is straightforward. There's, there's, there's nothing really ambiguous here. It, it's easy to see what the latter half of... Esther chapter 9 is all about, given the, the entire storyline we've studied so far. All points to a, a, a commemoration, a holiday of remembrance. Remember, remember, remember. Never, ever, ever forget. And it's not like this is the only place in the Scripture. You know, now if we study this, we can look at a couple of other places just to make sure... This isn't a one-off. When God took His people over the Jordan River, conquest of the Promised Land, they came to the Jordan River. Joshua had a, a, a delegate of each tribe put on his shoulder a stone. They got to the other side. They assembled those stones into a monument, right? Uh, after they walked through on dry land. Here's what he said, Joshua 4 And he said to the people, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan until you passed over as the Lord God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So how did he decide not to let that forget? He didn't have a phone in his pocket to take a picture. So they put a pile of rocks together. So their kids would say, what's that pile of rocks for? So they would never forget what God did for them. Uh, There's more things that go on. The the Passover meal was full of all these things they were supposed to eat. Bitter herbs represent the bondage and suffering. 
And as the text explains, as you eat this, you explain to your children who don't understand it because you don't usually eat horseradish by itself for dinner. It's to represent something. You explain to them what it represents so that you can perpetually teach your generations. They still do it to this day. Uh, the Feast of Booths was that way. That was a feast to commemorate their living in tents. So what did they do for a whole week every year? They lived in a tent. They went out back and they made a fort. How many of you think the kids liked that? Depends on their age, doesn't it? Ben would like it, but I don't think the rest of us would. The, the, the whole thing is to inconvenience yourself to make yourself remember. It's an obligation. You mean we got to do that again? It, we did it last year. Can't we skip it this year? No. We do this so we don't forget. We live in a tent in the backyard for a week. Um, there was the monument had to do with uh, eating manna. You know, we were starving. Now we have food. Praise the Lord. Don't ever forget it. All of this stuff is baked into the law that was given them. If the feasts weren't enough, then you had Deuteronomy 6. And Deuteronomy 6 is probably uh, in needlepoint in half the, the houses in this church. But here it is, and I'm going to read uh, down to the, the good part, the point of it all. And this was after the law was given, a lot was said specifically. The summary is this. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Comprehensive, total package, um, totally integrated. That, 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 that covers all the bases. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house, on your gates. If you've been to Israel, you've probably seen these Orthodox Jews put Scripture in a box and tie it to their head and wrap it down their arm in another box. Or if you've gone to the gift shops over there, the mezuzah, which is Scripture rolled up to nailed to the doorpost of your house. They took this stuff literally, woodenly, literally. Uh, I have a mezuzah. It's at the house that my parents are in now. It's given to me for teaching in a temple in Norfolk uh, one Saturday. Um, interesting experience. But this is how Jews to this day understand this passage. We believe that it's written in this book and hidden in our heart. But he goes on, And when the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill and cisterns that you did not dig and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant and when you eat and are full, take care lest you forget. Forget what? The Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So you kind of see there's already a copyright on you didn't build that. That is if we believe everything we've got comes from the Lord. 
And there seemed to be a, a, a pivot point, an inflection point here where it looked that they would be at most risk of forgetting this. And that is after they've eaten and they are full, then they'll need to take care lest they forget. So if we're going to try this shoe on, it's obvious that our problem isn't slavery in Egypt. We're not slaves in Egypt. And we're not exiles in uh, Persia either. And we're not in any other places other than we are right now. But similar, shouldn't say similar, exactly the same as any other person alive on this planet. Our ultimate problem is slavery to sin. And that's the truth all the way back to the Garden of Eden. It was Israel's problem. No matter if they were in Jerusalem, Judea, or part of the uttermost, be described later. It's our problem. It's always been man's greatest problem. That's why the whole Bible is about Jesus and Jesus coming to pay for the sin that we can't pay for ourselves. To, to, and introduced his debut uh, from John's gospel, introduced to the world as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world that was introduced in the Garden of Eden. That's the only way we find salvation. And until then, we're slaves to it. So we don't really need to talk in terms of exiles or slavery or manna or Jordan River or any of these other things they have as their monuments. The question is, do we have any monuments? Now, if this is a theological quiz in, in theology one oh something another, we have communion, this do in remembrance to me. We have believers' baptism, so the world knows who's a Christian and who's not. We also have our other things. And you'd be surprised as to how many of our national monuments may have overtones of biblical importance. We have our own memorials. We have our own feasts and holidays. We know how to have a cookout. I don't ever remember the aisle at Lowe's having grill stuff going all the way down the aisle. Most of that stuff will rust in two years. If you've got a good grill, it'll last all your life. Why do we know this? Because we're good at it. We can, we can grill some meats and have a party. That's not America's problem. We know how to organize food drives and toy drives around the holidays to make sure even the poor are taken care of. But when it comes to the things we do, are the things we do in any way, much less distinctively different, because we're Christians and because we've been saved. Because that, that might be something we need to look at. Um, Thanksgiving. Do we know the definition of that word? Giving thanks. Okay. Obvious question. Giving thanks to whom for what? Automatically a Christian holiday. Because if you don't believe in God, it's really kind of boring to thank goodness to thank chance. Let's roll some dice and thank them for coming up 7 and 11. You can't have 7 or 11, can you? Two dice. See, I don't use them. <laughs> I just know 7 and 11. I've heard them before. They're good or bad, whatever. What do we do on Thanksgiving? 
What about Easter? Easter gets dwarfed by Christmas, but Christmas starts what Easter finishes. If there were a holiday for Christians, it's Easter. Do we remember? Do we do things enough to make it count? I know church gets a bumper group there, but does it last? Is, is, is it just something you do so you feel good about not going all the other weeks except for Christmas? This is for you to decide. You're reasonable people. I wrote down New Year's. That's a good day to thank the Lord for what you had and ask Him to help you with what's ahead. Or birthdays. I keep the temptation to go back to children. Boy, it's just all over the place. Americans don't have a problem making a big deal out of birthdays. I think they might have a problem making too big a deal out of birthdays. I mean, what is a birthday other than a reminder that you were born? And as parents looking at little children, I hope you understand that that is a living creature with an eternal life that God made new from your union And with this new life, he actually put it in your arms and said, you bring it up, I trust you with it. Life or death, based on the the book right here, and how you raise them. Now that kind of adds a little significance to this business about deciding never to forget. And making sure the next generation has enough to make sense of this book. And not just some weird thing their old folks did when when they were younger on Sundays. But birthdays are a great day to remember all this. And to make it not necessarily about a pile of stuff in the corner, which probably requires a purge of the closet even to fit it in. That's what we do at our place, right? Gift in, gift out. To the dumpster or wherever else. Not to say that any of that's bad. It's just, do we know who we are? All of those things that were said about Israel uh, have a certain um, similarity to them all. If it was the Jordan River and the monument, over there is slavery in Egypt. Over there is the promised land. He's taken us over the river. We're now in the promised land. Praise the Lord. If it was manna, we were starving. Now we've got some food. Uh, If it was Passover, the Lord passed over us while it killed the firstborn of all of our enemies. Um, All of them have a before and an after. What's ours? If we're to, to have a monument, it would be the cross, wouldn't it? And I don't know that there's a better place in Scripture condensed... And, and, and piled up as there is in Titus 3. But this is, this is us. For we ourselves once were foolish, not anymore, but once, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures we couldn't say no to, passing our days in anger and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's the way we were. It's a song, isn't it? The way we were. That's the way we were. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, that's new birth, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, that's a new mind, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ because He paid for it, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs. How many of you would love to find out that you're an heir to an inheritance? You make it up. 
it's infinitely short of what this would be. We should remember this. So yeah, we have our memorials, but we have the same problem these folks had. Our problem's an old problem. In all the fuss, and don't think that when they inhabited the promised land with all the stuff that was there waiting for them, there wasn't a fuss as to what's going on. The same as now, we're just more sophisticated, more educated, more technological. We've got all kinds of toys and trinkets and gadgets, and they had to walk. We can fly to any place we want to go. Uh, they threw nets from a little boat. We can go to the Gulf Stream in a few hours. Uh, it only gives us more options, but the problem is the same. In the fuss attached to who we are, we're at risk of forgetting whose we are. That's probably worth writing down. It's simple enough. You could say it to someone or write it on the back of a napkin. We're in danger of forgetting whose we are if we make too big a deal of who we are. We have more options. COVID is good grief. COVID did in 10 or 20 weeks what technology normally would have done in 10 to 20 years. You wonder why the big tech companies are as inflated as they've ever been. We dumped a bunch of money into them. That's why, because we needed to Zoom. We didn't know what that was. It was available. We just didn't use it. We didn't have a need. Now we live by it. So in the future, I would wager that pastors will preach themselves blue in the face, hoping to convert and convince a group of people that coming to church in person is not the same as coming or going to church virtually. It's not the same. It can't be the same. COVID's not over yet. But one day it will be. And when it is, we need to get back together again because that's the way God designed it. We're human beings. We need each other. You've got a part I need and I've got a part you need to be whole. I didn't make it that way. The Lord did. Unless we obligate ourselves and our children... This will be lost. I think that's the point of the message as it hits us. And here's the question I want to ask you, and it's a good one. And it'll be the one that we can use to ask ourselves other further questions. If the Lord should tarry, that's a good bodily word for you, isn't it? Tarry. That means wait another thousand years before he returns. Will our descendants have enough to know the name of Jesus? And in what way is that on us? This is an old church. It's faithfully taught the Bible. Will it continue to? Only if we obligate ourselves and our children. I love that they put children in there because that's really the whole thing. It's passing to the next generation. Worst verse, maybe in all the Old Testament, was in Judges. And there arose a people who knew not the God of their fathers. It was the worst time ever. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We're not at, at, at loss for making up our own rules as we go. We're good at that. What we're at a loss for, keeping the rules God gave us and making sure that our kids know it. We got all these things we can be doing. But as my daddy used to say, it's never a good trade when you're trading gold for dirt. 
or to put it in the way the scriptures use it, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or stubble. One burns up, the other lasts forever. So a pastor has in his head a whole catalog of things as he looks out on a church that vies for the attention of especially the church's children. And I would say that sports is probably the one out of all of them that's the biggest interest. Now, I have words I could use right now that might have you making me or want to take me out back and have me shot. Because it'll run a spear right through your schedule. But if you consistently tell your children that church is the best place to be on the Lord's Day, but consistently take them somewhere else, they're not stupid. And they'll break your heart when they're grown. Because they will do what they saw rather than what you said. And that's just the hard case of life. You will reap what you sow. Sad part of it is, so will your grandkids and their kids. Either you will be used of God to further the gospel through remembrance, obedience, obligation on you and your family, routine in your life, made the decision now, so later when the temptation comes, you can say no. Or you'll just go as it seems best, and we'll all drift downhill because we're all sinners. We need each other for this too. But I think this passage in Esther has given us a wondrous pep talk and the idea of obligation. And to be, to be fair, keeping the Passover couldn't save the Jews. There, there's no gospel in the Passover. It's pointing to the gospel, but it's not the gospel. And church attendance is not meant to save us. It's what we do because we've been saved. The Passover pointed to Christ's first coming. And church is preparing us for his second coming. To be true to the timeline of history we see in our Bibles. So the question we're left with is, are we obligated? Have we obligated ourselves? Christ died For our sins, it's either much obliged or it's just a shallow thank you. Nice thought. And I guess the question, if this isn't right and we're not doing it right, we're sensible people, you ask the question, what will I change to make sure this is never forgotten? We're going to sing as we close. David's going to come lead us and uh, there'll be a benediction before we walk out. But, oh God, our help in ages past. Hope for years to come. The last line, be thou our guide while life shall last and our eternal home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. We thank you for the ruler by which to measure ourselves. We know the Bible says that we've fallen short of the glory of God. 
The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Lord, may we apply that ruler. May we be honest as to where we're short. May we fall on our faces pleading for mercy that you would pick us up and make us more like you. And would you so be glorified to lead someone to yourself through what you've done through us, whether it was a joy or whether it hurt real bad. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for this church. Lord, thank you for glory, which gives us hope. We can rejoice. This celebration is meant to be fun and enjoyable. We can't lose but all because of you. Thank you again, we ask in your strong name. Amen.